0: This episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. New supporters can vote on what books and guests should be featured in upcoming episodes. Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash CMTU History. Hello, welcome to episode 15 of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm Kevin, your host. We have a very exciting topic for today's show. We're talking about a group of bold, pioneering, and courageous women who took to the skies in the 1920s and 30s to compete in air races during the golden age of aviation. These women pushed the boundaries of aerodynamics by shattering records for speed, distance, and altitude, and refused to sit idle when society told them a woman's place was on the ground. Today, best-selling author Keith O'Brien joins us to talk about his latest book, Fly Girls, How Five Daring Women Defied All Odds and Made Aviation History. Keith is a former reporter for the Boston Globe, has written for New York Times Magazine, and is a frequent contributor to NPR. By sheer happenstance, Keith and I recorded our interview in March during Women's History Month, and I can't think of a more appropriate topic to feature on the program. In the podcast, Keith and I discuss how five notable female flyers fell in love with aviation in spite of its dangers, faced endless discrimination as they tried to compete with male pilots on an equal footing, and how they banded together to overcome not only what science and technology said was possible with their airships, as they were called, but what society said they could achieve as women. Now, on to the show.
1: The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast things from the past it's not the average history that you learned in school we're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools and stories that are just too crazy to believe the stranger than fiction and super unique
0: hi keith welcome to the show how are you sir
1: i'm great kevin thanks a lot for having me
0: oh thank you for coming on all right. So you are best known as a journalist and a writer. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, sure. I, I'm a, a former staff writer for the Boston Globe. Uh, I've been a long time contributor to National Public Radio. I've written for the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, Politico Magazine, and uh, and uh, with this uh, last book, I am, I guess, now officially a, a best selling author.
0: Oh, excellent. Very good. And. Um... Your book, your latest book, Fly Girls, How Five Daring Women Defied All Odds and Made Aviation History, uh, definitely deserves to be on that list.
1: Well, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. All
0: right, And uh, what made you um, decide to write on this topic?
1: Sure. So I'm not an aviator, and 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 at least in, before this, I, I wasn't an aviation historian in any way. Uh, you know, as a journalist, I'm always looking for story ideas everywhere I go and everything I read. And most journalists are. And in this case, I was reading a different book. I was, uh, with some cosmic irony, I was on a plane of all <laughs> places, in the spring of 2016. I was flying. From Boston to Pittsburgh for a story I was doing it doing at the time for Politico, and I grabbed for the flight a book that had been sitting on my bedside table for some time. It's the Astronaut Wives Club, uh, which is by Lily Copple. Uh, you know, it's narrative nonfiction about the wives of the first seven astronauts, the Mercury Seven. <laughs> and you know, my, one of my favorite books of all time is Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. And so I'm reading Lily's book just to really. See how she did it. You know, how did she tell this story from the opposite perspective, the perspective of the wives? And very early on in that book, uh, there is just one line uh, that references an all female airplane race in the 1920s that had featured Amelia Earhart. And, you know, the line just stopped me because probably like. You and, and and many of your listeners uh, I had never heard of an all-female airplane race in the 1920s and I'd certainly never heard of Amelia racing anything uh, and and that's where it started uh, on this plane reading that line and I just sort of did at that point what what journalists do you know I, I just pulled the string and and see where it led me and pretty soon I was in a in a in a library, reading old microfilm old newspapers from the 1920s and 30s specifically at that point 1929 and when you do that when you go live in old microfilm from 1929 or any of those years around it this whole world emerges that we have completely forgotten and it is the world of the air races
0: yeah the the shocking thing in in reading your book is is this was a big deal um Americans seemed just obsessed with aviation in the 1920s and 30s.
1: They were, you know, so you know, air fever is as the, as it was called at the time. Air fever is, is isn't born with the Wright brothers, uh, you know, uh, uh flying at Kitty Hawk in 1903. And it's not even born with, with the planes that flew during world war two or one, excuse me, or the great war. It was known at the time it, it is born in 1927. Uh, when, when there's a race effectively a race, uh, to get across the ocean, to see who could be the first person to, to fly nonstop from New York to Paris. And, you know, we all know that Lindbergh is going to get there for, but what we have forgotten is Lindbergh wasn't the first to try. You know, many men tried before him and failed in spectacular fashion. Uh, you know, Lindbergh makes it. Uh, he gets across the ocean, and and when he comes back to America, he is uh, very rich and very famous. And the the Guggenheims pay him uh, a half million dollars in today's, in today's money, uh, about $50,000 at the time to fly that spirit of St. Louis around the country that summer and fall. I think, I think he visited 92 cities in the spirit of St. Louis in the summer and fall of 1927. And it really is in that moment that air fever is born. Thousands of people, tens of thousands, you know, flock to the fields, uh, airfields and pastures, uh, to see the spirit of St. Louis to, to see Lindbergh and and it is in that moment that that boys and girls men and women really decide that they want to fly
0: yeah um Lindbergh has has popped up in in previous episodes of the podcast and um just the scope of his celebrity is something we've forgotten today
1: it is you know uh... You know, it, it it it's hard to compare it to anything. You know, uh, and and the same could be said for for Amelia Earhart and some of uh, some of the characters in in my book. You know, today we live in a world of fractured media. You know, if 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 you were to take a a poll in any large room, you know, about who is the top three most famous men or women in America we might get a plethora of answers because everybody sees the world through their own lens of whatever they watch on cable, what co- podcasts they listen to, if they read the newspaper or don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, back in that time, you you typically got the news one of two ways. You got it from the radio and you got it from the newspaper. And so we were all seeing the world through a very similar uh, prism. And, uh, and so when something like Lindbergh happened, uh, it, it magnified his fame, uh, you know, uh, many times over.
0: So you, um, focus, there were a lot of female, uh, aviators, but you focus on five specifically, you kind of give us a, a biography of them, this intersecting narrative, uh, of five women. Uh, can you give us a brief snapshot of the five that you focused on?
1: Sure. So I just want to be very clear. You know, I uh, it's it. it I, I didn't write uh, some kind of uh, boilerplate history of five different women. You know, uh, on five different tracks, and you know, each woman has their separate separate chapters. You know, this really is a story of a group of friends. Uh, you know, a, a group of friends who were who were pilots and and really set out to to change the world. And you know, today, of course, we all remember Amelia Earhart uh but really my story is 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 i think a more complete history um you know amelia earhart uh had friends and rivals and and they were pilots and and they while they did compete against one another in the sky, they they were friends on the ground. They did stick together. They had to, really. And so uh, my story really is a story of Amelia and her friends. And so, of course, there's Amelia. Uh, there's Ruth Elder, who is the first woman to try to fly across the ocean in October 1927, just uh, five months after Lindbergh goes. Uh, Ruth Elder was uh, 24 years old and on her second marriage in Florida, answering phones at a dentist's office when she came up with this bold plan that would make her famous on two continents, both Europe and uh, North America. Uh, There's uh, Ruth Nichols, uh, a daughter of Wall Street wealth. Uh, You know, more than any other woman in the 1920s and 30s, it is Ruth Nichols who will push Amelia and really challenge her for the title of most uh, accomplished female aviator. In fact, you know, by 1931, Uh, It is not Amelia who's considered the best or most famous female aviator in this country. It's Ruth Nichols. Uh, In 1931, Ruth Nichols has the speed record, the altitude record, the transcontinental speed record. Ruth Nichols will fly across this country uh, faster than Amelia Earhart and faster even than Charles Lindbergh. And it is Ruth Nichols, not Amelia, who sets off first Solo across the Atlantic in June 1931. This is one year before Amelia will attempt such a flight, and so you know, were it not for happenstance and bad luck, uh, that that Ruth Nichols will endure on that transatlantic flight, uh, we may know her name today, not Amelia's. Uh, Florence Klingensmith uh, was a daughter of a farmer in rural Minnesota. Um, you know, like all of these women uh, in 1927, Florence isn't satisfied with her life. Uh, she's working at a dry cleaners in Fargo. What she really wants to do is fly planes. And, and but, you know, Florence has no money, no connections, no family connections. Her father was a bus driver and a mechanic in, in rural Minnesota. And so Florence Smith does the only thing she can do. She enrolls in mechanic school. in in Fargo, North Dakota, in what is now modern-day Hector Field, the airport there. And uh, Florence is one woman out of 400 men learning to build and fix airplane engines. And it is here that Florence uh, acquires a plane, uh, convincing moneyed uh, businessmen in Fargo to help her buy it. And by 1933, Florence has established herself as uh, one of the best air racers in this country, either male or female, uh, better than Amelia, better than all of these women, and it is why uh, Florence will be given the opportunity uh, to to make history in 1933. She's invited to race not just against women, but against the men in an air race in Chicago, a, a race that will really change everything for for all the women. And then there's finally Louise Thaden, uh, Louise was very close with Amelia Earhart uh, you know considered Amelia uh, one of her best friends if not her best friend uh, and Amelia did the same uh, you know and she was uh, Louise was one of the scarcest kind of aviators in this de- in these days she wasn't just a woman who flew in race planes Louise was a mother uh, she uh, has her first child in 1930 her second in 33 um, at a time when our culture and, and many husbands expected wives to stay home. Louise does a very modern thing, you know. She she tries to have it all, um, you know, juggling her career ambitions and personal goals, which of course she had with her responsibilities at home and her love for her children, which of course she had, you know, uh, she, like, like many working parents today, uh, both fathers and mothers, Louise tried to, j- to juggle it all. And, and it really is only because of the sacrifices that Louise made during this time that we wrongly erased her, uh, from, from this story.
0: Yeah. You, you have this great, um, um, uh, moment in the book where reporters are, are questioning Louise Thaden, and and they ask her, you know, when you're out doing you know your, your races and what have you, who's taking care of your kids? And and uh, she says, well, Mr. Thaden, and and the reporters all think she's joking.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a big it's a big laugh line actually when she says it, and and I know that because it's one of the few recordings. That have survived uh where where you can hear louise's voice and you're right yeah she she says mr thaden of course and everybody laughs like she's said the funniest thing ever and uh you know it it seemingly wasn't a joke that louise was making she was just answering the question that is how it worked in the thaden house you know uh uh you know they they had a marriage that was certainly unusual for its time
0: um you talked about Charles, uh, Charles Lindbergh's watershed moment of crossing the Atlantic. Um, how was that news received by women?
1: Um, you know, it was received uh, pretty much uh, the same way by, by women and men. Uh, uh, you know, it was a huge deal. Uh, you know, there was... But let me take a step back for a second. You know, many people today uh, have flown across the ocean, and 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 uh, when we do, people often don't think much of it. Uh, but in 1927, there was a lot of doubt about whether it would ever be possible. Um, that to fly nonstop from New York to Paris, it's you know a flight of uh, of over three thousand miles uh, without stopping, and um, it was such it was such in doubt that engineers were writing articles in the aviation magazines in 1926 and 27, suggesting that we needed to build essentially raised platforms uh they were they were imagining almost uh an aircraft carrier that would would stand anchored uh uh, in the north atlantic where you could uh, land refuel and take off again um that's that's how much people doubted it it was possible to fly across the ocean and like i said before Lindbergh goes many men try before him and they all fail Ah, uh, so when he makes it, it is if it is as if you know the world has cracked open to a new possibility. Uh, you know, um, the idea that you could get across the ocean in thirty three hours. That's how long it took the spirit of St. Louis to get there uh, instead of uh, ten days on a ship was was, you know world altering for people. And so uh, it, it,
0: it, you know, and, and so that
1: it had that effect for both men and women. But, you know, it specifically uh, spurred uh, women, including uh, some of my characters, to want to follow in his footsteps. They wanted to be the first woman to fly across the ocean.
0: Okay, so there's there's the goal of, you know, being the first woman to cross the Atlantic. um, But there's also other goals they're pursuing. They're they're racking up milestones and records throughout the 1920s uh what were some of the goals they were pursuing and and exactly how dangerous was this stuff
1: so they were uh, women were trying to set speed records uh you know You know, uh, Louise Thaden would set it first, then Amelia would uh, break it, then Ruth Nichols would break it, then Amelia would break it again, and Louise would claim it back. Uh, You know, they were setting altitude records in the very same fashion. They set endurance records, where they would fly, uh, initially anyway, the first endurance records for women was was flying about 20 hours, uh, and they would do this just flying over a single airfield in the sky, like in a big circle. Uh, And... You know, uh, so it starts with you know, being able to fly about 20 hours nonstop, uh, you know, and then it changes within the matter of my story between 1927 and 1936 to flying for nine days nonstop, again just uh, in a circle over a particular airfield and and getting refueled by a, 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 a refueling plane. So you know, speed records, altitude records, they race across the the continent. They they want to set records between New York and Los Angeles and You know, planes were different then. Uh, For starters, we didn't know everything about flying, not nearly what we know today. And secondly, uh, you know, the engines and other equipment on board these planes simply weren't as reliable. Uh, The planes themselves uh, were often in these early days in the 1920s built out of linen and wood. Uh, Linen would be stretched over a a wood skeleton uh, frame uh, in order to make a a plane. Uh, They wanted the planes to be as light as possible because, you know, the weight of the plane was often the greatest barrier to flight, Uh, but a wooden plane. Uh, of course, could, could be rotting on the inside. And, and the pilot and mechanics might not even know it. And so at times, uh, chunks of wing would fall off. At times, entire wings fell off. Uh, you know, and, and so you know, planes could fail for all manner of reasons that, that we today would find to be shocking, but were all too commonplace at the time.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, I didn't keep track over the course of the book, but it sounds that just about every one of the five uh, characters you profile had some kind of crash at, at some point. Uh,
1: that's true. Uh, you know, uh, everybody crashed. Every single one of uh, these characters crashed. Uh, some, some worse than others. Uh, you know, <clears throat> the men were in the same boat. You know if you if you flew during this time, chances are you crashed, or you would have uh, what was termed at the time a forced landing, where, say, you had engine trouble and you would decide to land. In a farmer's pasture, or a field, or a desert, and, and hope uh, that it, w- it, it the ground was as flat as it looked like from the air. You know, imagine today, you know, flying between Dallas and Chicago and being told we're going to make a forced landing uh, at a, at a farmer's field in in southern Illinois. I mean, planes did that in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Wow. Um, So let's talk about uh, air racing specifically.
0: There is a man named Cliff Henderson. Uh, Who was he and what kind of events uh, did he organize?
1: So Cliff Henderson was a uh, a PT uh, Barnum-esque character of his time he was uh he was young uh he was uh, short and trim uh well-dressed very handsome uh he was a failed uh car salesman from santa monica california um But, you know, he was such a great uh, uh, pitch man and and, and seller of himself, among other things, that he convinces aviation officials in Los Angeles to uh, let him stage uh, the, the national air races in 1928 in L.A., uh, and and Cliff Henderson's first job is to find a, a field in which to hold these air races, and you know at the time in Los Angeles there were about eleven airstrips, uh, you know, little. Pastures and fields with with no facilities, no lights, but places where planes landed, uh, but nothing like what they needed to put on a ten day event uh, with Charles Lindbergh and and the world's most famous flyers racing in the sky and doing acrobatics in the sky. And so, Charles, uh, excuse me, Cliff Henderson uh, identifies a bean and barley field just south of downtown Los Angeles as the home for these air races. And it's it's worth pointing out that this bean and barley field that Cliff chose is, is still known today. Uh, we just know it by three letters. This is LAX, Los Angeles international airport. Uh, And so he puts on those very first races there, uh, in, in the summer of 1928. And, you know, I want to be clear here for aviation uh, enthusiasts and historians out there. This wasn't the first air races. Uh, you know, Almost as soon as, as the as the Wright brothers proved that flying was possible, uh, people were, of course, trying to race planes in the sky. Uh, so, you know, the races do date back even to before the Great War. But this was, to me, in my opinion, and I think the research bears it out, really the first modern air races uh, with grandstands. And, and, and prize a plan. money, right? and Big-time prize money. Big-time prize money.
0: What uh, challenges did the women pilots face in, in their first cross-country uh, derby? Um, and these 1927 or 1928 races you're referencing, they weren't allowed in those, correct?
1: Correct. So at, at the at the national air races in Los Angeles in 1928, uh, the women are invited. Uh, Louise Thaden is invited. Uh, uh, she's there. Uh, Ruth Elder is there. Amelia Earhart is there. Uh, but they're not. They're not invited to race. And you know, these races in LA drew enormous crowds. Uh, you know, I'm talking about. 600,000 paying fans uh, over the course of of the week to 10 days you know and and twice as many would watch for free on the hoods of their automobiles parked on nearby roads and highways. So, you know, upwards of 1.5 to 2 million people watched these things. And the papers covered the air races in Los Angeles like we cover the Super Bowl today. It was wall to wall coverage day after day after day. And so, of course, the women wanted in, they wanted to race. And you know, in the months uh, leading up to the 1929 air races, which would be held in Cleveland, uh, my characters Amelia Earhart, Louise Thaden, Ruth Nichols, uh, primarily uh, among them, really push to be included, uh, to to have their own race. And uh, Cliff Henderson, you know, finally relents and and he says, "Okay, uh, we'll, we'll allow you to race against each other," and all female air race, uh, from, uh, and the women wanted to do what the men did. Uh, the men would race across the country to the air races. So, uh, they would, uh, race from Los Angeles, say to Cleveland. Uh, and when the men did these races, they could fly any which way they wanted. They could, um, you know, take off in LA, refuel in Wichita or Kansas city, and, and then just get to Cleveland, you know, first one there wins. Uh, When the women wanted to do it, uh, Cliff Henderson and the male aviation officials impose a number of restrictions on them. Uh, The first is... They don't want them flying that far. They don't think the women have the, quote, stamina for a transcontinental flight. Uh, they, they, and they don't want them flying over the Rocky Mountains, uh, which were known for, uh, uh, you know, uh, wild updrafts and, and, and winds. Uh, they wanted them, the, the women to fly from Minneapolis to Cleveland or Omaha to Cleveland. And the, the second restriction they initially impose on the women is they want the women to fly while accompanied by a man. And, you know, it's probably not surprising to learn that uh, th- these women, these these uh, pilots, refused to accept those terms. And in June 1929, uh, they threw the full weight of their fame and their names behind a boycott that was initially announced in the New York Times. And they said, you know, if if this is how it's going to be, we we won't fly. We won't compete. And, it, you know, it was a bad look for Cliff Henderson in the air races. I mean, to hold the first all-female air race without Amelia Earhart and Louise Thaden and Ruth Nichols and Ruth Elder, you know, would have made it a sham of a race. These were the most famous female pilots in America. Uh, so uh, Cliff Henderson relents, and he allows them to race all the way from Santa Monica to Cleveland. Um, you know, and the women will face many mishaps along the way. Uh, you know, they will have forced landings, they will have crashes, uh, they will fly into sandstorms uh, over the Southwest. Uh, one woman's plane will, will catch on fire uh, in, in midair from an errant cigarette apparently left in the luggage compartment by a mechanic. And, and one of these women uh, will die. Uh, Will die in a crash in in Arizona, and you know the same kind of stuff happened in the men's races all the time. They crashed. They had forced landings. They had mechanical problems. They died too. And you know when the men died, uh, they were treated as heroes and and, and uh, given grand tributes and memorials on the airfield and in the newspapers. And you know when one of these women dies uh in this first ever air race in 1929 they of course uh and i by they i mean the male aviation officials and the male reporters blame the woman herself uh they they question her ability uh they question her condition quote unquote at the time of the crash uh they wonder if maybe she grew faint uh you know and really this is just the beginning uh you know these women will face these kind of ridiculous questions and criticisms uh, for, for, the, uh, for the bulk of my story, you know, from, from 1927 to 1936. Uh, they, you know, have to prove themselves again and again and again in the face of entrenched discrimination.
0: Yeah, throughout the, the course of the book, they they experience, um,
1: as I assume they probably do
0: in all aspects of society at this time, uh, all kinds of, of sexism in the aviation
1: world. Uh, there was uh, all kinds of discrimination, as you said, in aviation at that time. You know, um, in 1928, there were uh, 29 million women who were eligible to vote that uh, November in the presidential election. Uh, Out of that number, 29 million, fewer than a dozen, fewer than 12 had a pilot's license on file at the U.S. Department of Commerce, which was the regulating agency at the time. Now, that number is a little soft. Uh, Before the Department of Commerce began regulating aviation in late 1926, a number of uh, private groups uh, did so and did issue licenses. Uh, But the fact remains that a, the, the, the number of women flying planes in this country in the late 1920s was just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the female population. And, you know, these women faced, uh, you know, discrimination at almost every turn, uh, you know, male uh, flight instructors uh, would complain about having to teach them to fly. Uh, the government uh, actually wrote into uh, its rules uh, that women were not to fly within three days of, of their period of their of the menstrual cycle. Uh, you know to, which to me was one of the most shocking things that I, I, I dug up here. you know the idea, that uh, the government would would, not only say such a thing, but then write it into the rules is is simply shocking and and all too uh, emblematic of of what these women face during this time.
0: We'll return to my conversation with Keith O'Brien in a moment. But first, in the spirit of today's topic, I wanted to tell you about some of my favorite podcasts hosted by some awesome lady podcasters. If you like humor and popes, then you'll love Pontifacts. This weekly podcast is devoted to the history of the papacy, all 2,000 years of it. In Pontifex, hosts Bree and Fry discuss the in-depth history of each pope from Peter to Francis and then rank them in a hilarious bracket to discover who is the popiest pope of them all. If you want a break from history podcasts to dive into a compelling fictional serial, then you have to check out Haunted Happenstance. In this creepy first-person drama, host jennifer describes her experience of moving into a new apartment in boston and discovering numerous odd occurrences about the building and her new neighbors as haunted happenstance unfolds these mysterious coincidences become far too eerie for jennifer to ignore lastly if you're curious about the unexplained give a listen to nothing ever happens in canada hosted by someone known only as canadian girl Nothing Ever Happens in Canada takes a look at Canadian folklore, reports of the paranormal, and all around just plain weird history of the can't make this up variety. All three of these podcasts, Pontifax, Haunted Happenstance, and Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to my interview with Keith O'Brien.
1: Not only say such a thing, but then write it into the rules is, is simply shocking and, and all too uh, emblematic of Of what these women face during this time
0: yeah, and, um, as embarrassing as as it is absurd for sure
1: that's a great way of
0: putting it. So uh, suppose listeners of the show could go and attend one of Henderson's uh, speed racing events because you've got the the cross country derby, but there's also these speed
1: racing events. Um,
0: what are those 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 look really interesting.
1: Right, so there were two kinds of races, the transcontinental races or derbies, like I mentioned, and then the pylon races or, or free-for-all races, as they were known. Uh, planes would race uh, in a triangular course at an airfield or city around pylons, 50-foot towers uh, that were placed on, on the ground uh, to make a course. You know, These towers initially were very rudimentary. Uh, but they would grow to be uh, these uh, elaborate towers decorated with advertisements, just like we might find today at at a NASCAR race. And and that's indeed what this was. I mean, it was essentially NASCAR in the sky. Uh, A small group of planes, say, you know, anywhere from six to 10, uh, would be in a race uh, over a predetermined distance and would race around these pylons, around this triangular course, uh, trying to beat uh, each other to the finish. And so, you know, it, it's not hard to imagine how, just how, how uh, dangerous this was. Uh, you've got planes bunched up in the sky, uh, whipping around uh, these towers. Uh, you know, you, you didn't want to fly too high around the towers because there were judges standing at the foot of them to make sure each plane went around. And so the planes would fly low. Uh, as low as you know 40 to 70 feet to make it very clear to the judges that they had made it around the pylon Uh, and so you got planes flying low Uh, anywhere from 200 to 250 miles an hour, 40 to 70 feet off the ground. Uh, And so uh, all kinds of mishaps unfolded. You know, planes would run into each other. Planes would crash into the ground while trying to avoid each other. Planes' wings would clip the pylons and go down. And then of course, you know, Engines in the planes themselves would fail, you know, buckling under the strain of the speed, just like would happen in the in the transcontinental air derbies. And so, uh, you know, just like there's a certain number of people today who go to NASCAR races, you know, hoping to see a crash or two, uh, people came out to the air races for the same reason. It was exciting and it was dangerous and it was unpredictable.
0: People were nuts, man. (laughs)
1: they were they were Uh,
0: um all right so um we we go from the roaring 20s to to the great depression and um that seems to be where uh women's progress in the field of aviation uh hits a few bumps um can you tell us how um how these ladies organized and and lobbied for better equality in 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 the
1: Sure. So after that very first uh, transcontinental air race in in 1929, uh, the women also get the opportunity to race in the pylon races in in Cleveland uh, at at the races there. And, you know, they they learn a lot. You know, they learn a lot about um, what they can do, and they also learn a lot about, you know, what they are being told they still cannot do. And so it is after that uh, very first race in in 19... 29 that they decide that they need to organize and and they they have this very first discussion about it uh, underneath a clump of trees uh, You know uh, at the airfield in Cleveland, which uh, is today the the modern-day location of Hopkins uh, International Airport, you know a lot of these air races were held at, at What are today our, our modern airports? And so the women meet there and they decide they need to organize and uh, and they do you know they they firm they form uh, the first ever uh, women's uh, group uh, of pilots, four pilots. So, by women pilots, for women pilots. Uh, they send invitations to all 117 uh, licensed female pilots in this country by the end of 1929. Again, just 117. And they receive yes replies from 99 And so because of that, uh, under Amelia's suggestion, they decide to form what they call the 99s, essentially an advocacy group uh, for women in the air. And this organization still exists today. And so, you know, th- this organization will work uh, to to earn equality for women in the sky uh, in, in every which way you can think of. They they want women to be hired at airlines, which are just starting to form, uh, and, and they want the, the women to have opportunities to compete in the air races
0: and 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 by and large um and, and you talk about this in the book they they rack up a, a number of successes uh in in changing the culture um what do you think that women and girls living today uh that they can take away from the history of of these women
1: well you know they i guess the most important thing two most important things are are these uh you know, the first is, they knew they had to stick together. You know, uh, in the sky, they 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 fought and competed against one another for the trophies, for the prize money, for the history, for the records. Uh, it, it, they wanted desperately, a few of them, uh, to beat each other across the ocean. You know, uh, Ruth Nichols and Amelia Earhart and the others. They all knew. Uh, that the first woman who could fly solo across the ocean uh, would earn a, a key uh, a, a, that would open the door uh, to the room of legends. They knew that. And, uh, and so they desperately wanted that and, and, and would sometimes keep secrets from one another about what they were planning in an effort to try to, to pull it off first. Uh, but on the ground, they knew they had to stick together. Uh, And and they did, you know, uh, even uh, the most famous of them all on their own had diminished power but together they were a force to be reckoned with and they knew that and they would use that power for good and for what was right uh more than once they boycotted the air races uh more than once uh they uh started campaigns uh to to allow the women uh increased access to compete in the air races uh you know so so they they stuck together and um the second thing is you know they didn't quit. Uh, you know, the men uh, wanted them to quit more than once, and they would banish them, uh, kick them out of the air races more than once. Uh, if if these women had accepted the rules that were against them. The laws that were against them. If they had accepted their banishment, if they had quit like the men wanted them to do, uh, it would have changed everything for for the women who came after. You know, uh, many of your listeners have probably heard about the WASPs, uh, the women Air Force Service pilots, uh, about a thousand women who served during World War II uh, flying planes, military planes, uh, from, from factories to bases, uh, you know, helping to get the planes uh, to the front, essentially. Um, you know, were it not for, for the women in, in my book, uh, the, for the women in Fly Girls, uh, the WASPs don't exist. Uh, because, you know, uh, one of the key members who formed the Wasps was a woman by the name of Jackie Cochran. Uh, you know, Jackie uh, first becomes famous and, and builds a platform for which she can later uh, argue for the Wasps by winning an air race in 1938, two years after my story ends. You know, if, if these women had quit uh, and given up, accepted their banishment. Jackie Cochran isn't racing in 1938, most likely. And so most people would have never known her name uh, when the war breaks out in 41. And so, you know, uh, these women are directly connected to to the thousand women who would fly during World War II, in my opinion. And I really do believe that all women pilots that that come after, you know, uh, stand on their shoulders.
0: And, um, You know, you can extend that to uh women in the space program as well,
1: I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um uh uh you know, uh you know I think you know some of these women, including Ruth Nichols, would would live long enough to to try to make it into the space program. In in the
0: uh, uh, late
1: 1950s, uh, they they would. It's worth noting, fail uh, to to make it into the space program. And and I think another thing is worth noting, you know, uh, the first woman would go to space in America in 1983, as Sally Ride, uh, and you know that's. Uh, Fifty years after Florence Clayton Smith competes against the men in Chicago uh, in that air race in Chicago, and it is it is uh, twenty years uh, after the Russians send the first couple of women into space. So you know,
0: now that is just shocking. We
1: were, yeah, we were very behind the times mm-hmm. when compared uh, even to our. Uh, our, our, our Cold War communist rival, uh, the Soviet Union.
0: All right. So over the course of writing this book, um, did you have a favorite of the five uh, that you liked writing about?
1: You know, uh, it, it's impossible to choose. Uh, you, I, I admire all of them. Um, each of these women... Uh, was braver than I am, more courageous than I am, uh, uh, f- f- overcame more adversity than I have. Uh, uh, so I, I, I admire them all. Uh, but I, but I, I won't duck your question, Kevin. You know, um, you know most of these women uh, did not have children. Uh, or did not have children that that lived a long time uh, Louise Thaden is is the exception um, she again has has children in the 1930s and 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 they did live a long time and you know fortunately one of them is still alive today uh, Louise's daughter really? born in, yeah Louise's daughter was born in 1933 she'll be 86 years old uh, later this year and uh, her name is 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 as her mom called her, she was Patsy, Patsy Thaden. Um, uh, but uh, today she's uh, Patricia Thaden Webb. Uh, she lives in suburban Maryland, uh, and I have uh, had the, um, the great honor and opportunity of having spent many an afternoon in in her living room with her, talking about her mother. And you know, you know, Pat can't recall. You know, of course, dialogue in the kitchen between Amelia and Louise uh, when my story ends in 1936 with uh, the uh, the first ever uh, race in which a woman beats a man, uh, you know, uh, Pat Thayden is just three years old. So uh, it's not like she can recount for me details, uh, but, you know, when you when you sit with someone. Uh, and, and interview someone who is the spouse of someone you're writing with, or the child of someone you're writing with, or, the, or writing about, or the parents of someone you're writing about. You do learn about them in ways you can't even from very detailed archives and diaries and letters and notes. And so, you know, I do feel like I I I got to know Louise in a way that sadly I couldn't with the other women. And you know, when you sit with Pat in her living room in Maryland, you do feel. A little like you're sitting with her mother, you know. Louise was very tall, at least for the time. She was over five foot eight. Uh, Pat is also tall. Uh, you know, Louise was from Arkansas, had a very plain-spoken way of talking, plain-spoken folksiness to her, uh, very warm. Uh, you know, Pat does too. And so, you know, when you do sit with her, you you do feel uh, Louise's presence.
0: What an awesome resource for you um in in researching uh, the the book that that's really cool,
1: yeah, but... it was. and and I will say, you know, I was fortunate to track down descendants of, of all of the women, uh, you know, some closer in, in, in relation than others. Uh, but you know, I've connected with a great many, uh, great nieces and great nephews and at times, uh, nephews, uh, of, of, of these women. And it's been, it's been very cool, uh, even for those families. Uh, but very cool for me to, to, to bring these women back to life, you know, for the families and and, and for others.
0: Well, I understand that there is a young readers edition of Fly Girls. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that and and what prompted the decision to make a a youth edition?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the book's been adapted of, of, for young readers, uh, roughly ages eight to twelve, depending on your 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 child's uh, reading level. It's it's a middle grade book, and it is essentially the same story uh, uh, adapted and written for for middle grade readers and i just think it's so cool and i can't take credit for it although you know i did the work to adapt it and and to and to uh, reshape it for kids uh i i have to give the credit to to houghton mifflin harcourt the publisher you know from the from the very beginning uh almost now three years ago uh when 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 this was just an idea of mine uh they wanted to to turn this into a, a book for young readers, and you know, it's just really cool to me now that it's out. It just came out a couple weeks ago uh, that uh, a new generation of kids, uh, both boys and girls, uh, can can get this bigger story. You know, uh, we've handed down Kevin this this very reductive history of women in aviation you know uh when when we think about women in aviation in the 1920s and 30s in this country we tend to think about one or two women uh uh, bessie coleman the first african-american female pilot in this country Mm -hmm. who dies in a plane crash in 1926 that's about a year and a half before my story opens or or of course amelia and and you know the the story is just uh much more, uh, interesting than that. You know, she wasn't alone. She was flying with this squadron of women. And I think for young girls, it makes, uh, the story of Amelia and the story of Amelia's heroism that's been handed down more accessible when you realize that she wasn't just a long shot once in a lifetime woman who did, Amazing things at a time uh, when it was hard for women to do so. You know, she was surrounded by, uh, you know, a bunch of other women who were doing the same kinds of things. Uh, and and I think for boys, you know, it, it. And I and I say this as a father of boys. Uh, it, it's it's especially heartening to think uh, that they'll be reading this and and realizing subtly, if, if you know that. A woman is just as brave, just as bold and, and 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 just as tough as they are, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I think this story is uh, you know super inspirational for um, yeah, girls and boys. Um, actually, uh, as as I was reading it, um, my daughter, she's she's five, and uh, she uh, loves Amelia Earhart. She just enjoys getting books out about her at the library, and um, she thinks it's uh, she loves when she shows up at night in the museum, too. Um, But anyway, as I was reading your book, you know, I kept showing her the pictures uh, in it uh, of Amelia, and and she had a lot of fun with it. So I I definitely look forward to sharing the the young edition with her uh, as well.
1: Well, that's awesome that's awesome and you know i have to like share a little dream of mine with you you know uh now that you mentioned your daughter you know every year you'll see on facebook or even maybe at your at your front door on halloween you know uh, a young girl dressed up as an aviator and they'll say well you know i'm amelia Earhart," and that is awesome it is so uh great that you know 80 plus years since Amelia went missing, we still do remember her. But it is like this little dream I have that that somebody will knock on a door, trick or treating uh, this this October, and uh, dressed as an aviator. And when asked, you know, who they are, will say, you know, I'm, I'm Louise Thaden, or Ruth Nichols, or Florence Klingensmith or Ruth Elder.
0: That would be really cool. I I like that idea. thank you i do too all right so um if people want to uh pick up a copy of your book and and learn uh more about how uh women fare uh, when they're finally admitted into the the super bowl of all um air races that's kind of where your book ends uh if they want to learn more about this story uh, where can they go
1: well, um, there's a website uh, where you can learn more about my book. It's, it's flygirlsbook.com. Uh, but, you know, the book is everywhere. You can, uh, you can pick it up at your uh, local independent bookseller. Uh, you can uh, pick it up at Barnes & Noble or Amazon or, or wherever you buy books.
0: All right, Keith. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Uh, this has been wonderful.
1: Hey, Kevin, thanks a lot for having me. It was a real pleasure.
0: Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to today's episode. If you want to learn more about Keith's book, Fly Girls, you will find a link to it in the episode description on your podcast app. If you want a list of back episodes of the show to see what other topics we've covered, visit can'tmakethisuppodcast.com forward slash show archive. Lastly, if you want to follow the show on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CMTU History. I'd love to hear from you. That's it for today. See you back here in two weeks on Tuesday, April 16th.